Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewery on Historic Bridge Street in Waco. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio Welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. Uh, this is an episode on the Waco Mammoth Site, one I've been wanting to do for some time. Uh, and it's a, it's a combination of a couple of different different interviews that I did. Uh, the first one that you're person you're going to be listening to is Paul Barron. And uh, Paul Barron and Eddie Bufkin can't get enough credit for sharing uh, their discovery of mammoth bones uh, along the river with the rest of the world. And so this is uh, what you're going to be listening to is from an interview I conducted with Paul Barron in October of 2009, there's a bit of an echo, and it's because we recorded this at the construction site of the Welcome Center, uh, which in the space that eventually became the Welcome Center at the Waco Mammoth National Monument. And so this is Paul's story uh, of a young man uh, and a discovery he made years ago. Well, you know, just anything that had anything to do with hunting or fishing, you know, or camping as a kid, I just loved it. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be outdoors, and uh, I uh, learned, you know, from walking through the woods in Texas, you know, from, uh, particularly in the spring and fall, that if you're smart, you can keep your eyes on the ground. And so, uh, in keeping with that, I was uh, walking up the creek bed, and we had a little, a little pistol with us that we had loaded with rat shot. We were kind of, kind of looking for snakes, kind of, kind of exploring. But what we do is we turn over a rock or a stump, and if a snake came out from under it, we blast it with the rat shot. Uh, but we were really hoping we didn't see one when we turned, <laughs> when we turned the, turned the rock or the stump over. Anyway, we were. Uh, so were you holding the gun or turning over the rock and the stump? Well, yeah, I think I had the pistol, and, and Eddie was uh, was doing the stump turning. So. Anyway, we had we had a three fifty seven, but it was loaded with wreck shot, so there was no danger of ricochet or anything. And even if we shot each other, you know, a wreck shot wouldn't be much damage. <laughs> so, so anyway, we were uh, we were walking up an old uh, dry creek bed, and being down at the bottom of the creek bed, we didn't realize when we passed the borders of the property that we were authorized to be on. And we continued off of that property on the property of a gentleman named Doctor Hattenchek. And we had no idea we weren't still on our place, on the place that we had leased. But anyway, uh, there was an elevation change, and I began to climb up that elevation change in the little wash we were walking up. And a piece of uh, what I perceived to be rock broke off of my hand. But after looking at it, I realized that it was a section of bone, there was a marrow section in the middle of it. And I began to look around both sides of the cut bank. 
I noticed a rounded sphere of bone sticking out of the back that appeared from where I was to be perhaps the back of a human skull. So I dug it out and dusted it off and realized that you know, it was some kind of ball and socket knee joint. And then I looked across the cut and noticed that there was a femur bone between four and five feet long and 10 or 12 inches around, still sitting in a vertical position. And at that point, I was 90% sure of what I was looking at. I looked a little further and I saw the apex and curve of one of the tusks. You know, and, you know, immediately dollar signs flashed in my eyes. But sure. then after looking at it more carefully, I could see that it shot through and there were little bitty cracks and that just the act of trying to dig it out could destroy it. And definitely if you dug it out, if you tried to pick it up, it would crumble. At that point, I knew I was not equipped to move it or to try to do anything with it myself. But based on my experience with the uh, Baylor Geology Department and my knowledge of the, of the Strecker Museum, I knew that they would have the facilities and the expertise to properly excavate it and care for it. And I, I did not want it to be my secret. I wanted everybody to see it and everybody to know about it because, I mean, it was always something I was fascinated with and I just thought that, uh, you know, it was the most amazing thing. You know, I just couldn't wait to tell somebody. Yeah. Well, take me through your thought process as you start to figure out this isn't a cow or, yeah. Well, okay, the, the first thing was Okay, I've got a piece of bone in my hand. I have no idea what it came from. And then I spot something that looks like something I'm familiar with. I thought maybe that was an Indian burial ground. So when I went and dug it out, okay, it's not a skull. It's way too big to be part of a human bottle socket. It's too big to be bovine, you know, so what else is there? And then I looked across the peak and saw that massive femur bone. And at that point, I was fairly certain I knew what I was looking at. Then I spotted what I thought to be a tusk and the, you know, the apex of the curve, the point and the root both buried back in the, in the, in the bank. At that point, I, I was pretty confident of what I was looking at, but I took the rounded sphere, the knee joint to, uh, to uh, David Lentz at the Strecker Museum. And I was met with not really any interest, really. He was pretty dismissive. He said, you know, we find that stuff all the time when we excavate buildings and foundations. And I said, well, you know, I really think it'd be worth your time if you just come out and look at it. I said, it's, it's big. He said, you think you have a complete animal? I said, I think I have several complete animals. You know, and, and at that point, he, his interest picked a little bit. And he said, well, after lunch, we'll come over we'll there and look at it. So I waited around Baylor campus until he had taken his lunch. and. He loaded up a couple of associates and we headed out here. And once they saw the site, they both got real quiet, but I could see in their eyes that they were definitely more than interested to know. And- uh, uh, How did you get to the site then? Did you come in? Well, we accessed it the same way I accessed it the first time because I, I really didn't even know where I was at. The only way I knew to get to it was the way I'd gotten to it. And basically, the, you had to drive across that creek wash to get to my sister's house. And so we parked right there in her driveway and walked down in the creek and came up the same way I came up. And, you know, this was in the, in the days before GPS and all that stuff. I had no idea where we were, but I knew how to get to you go up this creek, you know. <laughs> so they were, they were speechless. Their demeanor changed noticeably. I mean, I, I, could, I could see that, that you know, there, there was, there was, 
you know, awe and wonder in, the, you know, in their eyes at the magnitude of what was there. And, uh, and I, because, you know, usually when you hear about it, you, you hear of somebody found a tooth or they found a few bones, you know, we had, we had complete animals, you know, it was, it was pretty obvious that that would be the case, you know. I mean, the more you looked, the more you saw, you know. I mean, it wasn't just, I mean, there was undergrowth and everything, but, you know, you look beyond that and you started seeing, you know, when, after the fact, I think maybe it was on the way back to our cars, I had noticed a, a phenomenon with that particular bone that the porous, the porous sections of it would gather moss and turn green, turn greenish hue. And as we were walking back to our cars, the, the creek was just littered with little greenish rocks. And if you picked any one of them up, it, it was definitely washout material from, from, from the mammoth side. So, you know, at that point, uh, David Lentz and his associates were, were excited about the mammoth find, and, uh, and I was too. Well, of course, as often the case, the discovery is only the beginning. Uh, then the work began to determine what had actually been discovered. One of the individuals who was central in that work was Calvin Smith. And so I'm going to transition now to an uh, interview I did with Calvin. I've got a, a local museum legend uh, on the line with us today remotely, Calvin Smith. And uh, if you're familiar with uh, the Mayburn Museum, if you're familiar with the Mammoth site, if you're familiar with the Dr. Pepper Museum, pretty much the museum community in Waco or in Texas, you have a debt of gratitude to Calvin Smith, uh, who's on the line with us. Uh, director of the Mayburn had a 20 year career, career at Baylor. Uh, not only getting things started on campus and locally, but also with the museum landscape in Texas. So he's joining us from Colorado. Thanks, Calvin, for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah. So I, I want to uh, take this story. We've we've talked a little bit uh, to about the early years, those early years with the Mammoth site. Talk a little bit about how when your career kind of comes into this narrative of this uh, kind of local treasure that had been discovered? Well, I'll, I'll start a little bit further back because it was so important to my career. And that was that uh, uh, I had uh, moved from Arkansas, where I was director of Arkansas Museum Services, uh, to uh, Waco, uh, with the support of Butch Clements, uh, CEO and president of Dr. Pepper. Mm -hmm. uh, he had, he and <clears throat> others had asked me to come back and, and help with the Dr. Pepper Museum, which wasn't a museum. It was uh, an old building with a, with a hole in the roof, pigeons inside and vagrants in the basement. Uh, so it was, it was a real challenge, but I did a long range master plan uh, that really encompassed the uh, 100th anniversary of Dr. Pepper. And in the process of that, I drew up plans and thoughts and ideas and challenges, really, to Dr. Pepper. And uh, they accepted it 100%. They thought it was a great process, a good, good idea. And then Foots Clements called me into his office in Dallas uh, late November or very early December. And with tears in his eyes, he said, we're going to have to put this project off. 
Mm. He said, we've just had our first leverage buyout and it's, the museum is not in their plans. But he said, I promise you, we're going to do it. And, uh, but he had to let me go. And so uh, almost simultaneously, uh, Dr. Brown, uh, Bryce Brown, who mm-hmm. was then director of Strecker, called me in and said, uh, Calvin, I'm going to have to retire. Uh, he had some severe reaction to the chemicals that he had used for years in processing and uh, preserving uh, uh, the herp collection, herpetology collection. And he couldn't even go downstairs without starting to gasp for breath. And uh, of course, downstairs was downstairs of the old (laughs) Sid Richardson Science Building. And I looked all over the place for a window down there and couldn't find it. You know, it was just it was a disaster. Uh, we had no ADA, no water, no running water. We had water, but it wasn't supposed to be down there. And uh, so I said, uh, I'm interested. And within a day or two, literally, all this happened just very quickly. I had a call from the uh, uh, Moody Foundation in Galveston, wanting me to take the uh, leadership on their new museum on the uh, railroad museum down there, the train museum. Mm -hmm. And so I went down and visited and yeah, that was a good challenge. Uh, And they offered me the best package I've ever been offered. I mean, it was just absolutely fantastic. So came back and told my wife uh, that uh, I'd been offered this position and how much they were going to pay me. And she said, but I don't want to move back to the coast. We had been at Beaumont before. So uh, I called them and told them, well, we sure appreciate the offer, but we're not going to do that. And they flew up and offered me even more. (laughs) And I said, look, we just don't want to move back down there, but I appreciate the offer. I said, let me wait and see what Baylor does. And they said, we'll wait too. Wow. So uh, I interviewed with Dr. Reynolds. And I was very impressed. Uh, And what turned out to be my family, literally, at Baylor, uh, I was just just really sold on getting that job. But uh, typically, Baylor doesn't make snap decisions. (laughs) So the only time in my career I was without pay for about three months. Uh, They hired me on February the 2nd of 83. And uh, I came aboard, but Bryce really didn't officially retire until September, but he never came down back down in the museum, but one or two times. Mm. Now, and, in that meeting with Reynolds, did he cast a vision for something bigger? Not really. Okay. Not really. He, he, was, he was, I think, open to change, but he didn't voice it. Okay. You know, it, was, it was not something that he foresaw. Uh, nor did anyone else. <laughs> uh, so I, I accepted the position. I came aboard and it was, uh, you know, hell bent for leather for uh, until September. I was just trying to keep the balls in the air and, and trying to, to look at what was possible, what could be possible. And uh, to give credit where credit was due, Uh, Bryce had thought about a new museum, uh, an environmentally uh, 
safe museum. And uh, it was not not big enough, in all honesty. It was about an exchange of space for space. And so uh, David mentioned about November, as we best can tell, uh, something about some mammoths up west of town. And I perked up because my background is archaeology, and I had worked at Blackwater Draw and was the first curator at the Blackwater Draw Museum, where we Blackwater Draw is now a, a national landmark. And we had I was just at the very end of the, the excavation uh, in 61, I guess. Yeah, 61 or 62, uh, when I was invited there to uh, for a scholarship offer. And I went out to the site, and they had found five mammoths and 166 artifacts in direct association. They had been killed and butchered right there. And uh, I said, no, I'm not going to this podunk school. I'm going out to University of Arizona. And the first check I wrote wiped me out. <laughs> <laughs> I had to find a job in a washeteria to keep going. Uh, but I was out there two years, and mm -hmm. another story. But uh, I eventually ended up back at Eastern and became the the first director of, uh, uh, our first curator. We didn't call them directors back then, uh, of the Blackwater Draw Museum. So I was very interested in any kind of mammoth, singular or plural. Yeah. And so when he said they had found five portions of five mammoths, I said, when can we go out there? Uh, I said, this is, this is very important because uh, historically, uh, anytime there's five or more mammoths together, uh, at that point in time, humans were associated. So I saw this as a potential kill site to start with. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was uh, a little bit later, we finally got out there. And I walked up the draw from where we had had uh, gone over the fence and walked into the site. And there was a vertebrae coming out of the right side of the bank, the backside of a skull on the left side of the bank, and a tusk sticking out down close to where they were work had been working. So there was at least three more. That made eight. And uh well, I hate to be crude, but I about peed in my pants. <laughs> well, was, yeah, talk about how unusual that uh, that, that was. Yeah, or well, is. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is very unusual uh, because you just there, that number uh, is staggering in the profession. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just singular mammoths are where you find the artifacts usually, historically. Again, uh, of course that. Uh, Blackwater Draw, uh, we had uh, primarily females and, and juveniles, but uh, uh, this was this was an incredible find. Mm -hmm. It really was. And so uh, years ago, the museum had what they called junior naturalists, and they hadn't been very active, but we David had some connections. We called them back together. We went out and started doing some preliminary uh, reveal. It wasn't through excavation. It was just revealing what was there. 
and uh, sure enough, it was it was good. It was, uh, I think in in the book you saw that end of a tusk sticking out and what it looked like. You couldn't tell it until I cleaned it up. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody that's that's worked with mammoths knew exactly what that was immediately. And so we, uh, I had decided that it was extremely important. We needed to excavate it properly. So we established a datum, which is a permanent rod, steel rod or pipe that is placed in the ground and then triangulated so that we know exactly where it is to the rest of the world. In other words, that location mm -hmm. becomes permanent. I see. And uh, it was a, a race then because of weather and lack of funds and uh, help uh, to try to see what we had. And so we, if it had, I, I, I've said this before, but if it hadn't been for the understanding and interest of FM and Gloria later on, but FM Young uh, in trusting me to take over an old worthless backhoe, <laughs> that uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about this because we had no resources to go and try to uh, rent or purchase a backhoe. We just, it just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So he loaned me, in the end, three different backhoes that he claimed I wore out. <laughs> they, they were they were priceless, uh, but they were worn out. I mean, it was yeah. it, it was, it, but. I started removing the overburden, which from the base of where they were laying, that's not the base of them because they were little, you know, they're big animals and they were higher than that, but about 12 feet of overburden. Okay. And so started working on trying to get that removed and looking at what was coming out. And we did find it was an old draw that had been filled with, uh, probably 1950s, maybe a little bit late 40s, early 50s uh, trash. Hmm. And so we were finding tin cans and, and crockery and a few other uh, modern items as we were uh, excavating that particular portion. And uh, got down to the just above the mammoth level. And I, I was, I Fortunately, in this case, grew up in the oil fields. Unfortunately, in a lot of other instances, I grew up in the oil fields. But I, I knew how to operate a backhoe pretty well. And so uh, got pretty good and, and got down to where I knew they would be and then backed off. And then we went down by hand. And I say by hand, that meant by trowel and brush, literally. Because anytime you encounter bone uh that is not totally fossilized you can scratch it very mm. easily you can make marks on it so that was my primary goal is not to because because if humans had been involved they would have been doing some butchering i see and and those those marks would have been on the bone itself been, so, so i didn't want putting marks on the bone didn't want false evidence to kind of distort the findings yeah yeah exactly yeah so that was a primary objective. The second objective was to screen everything, uh, to make sure that uh, we caught anything that was human oriented, that be a, a scraper, a knife, or a point, a, uh, in some cases, a rarely, but a foreshaft on a 
dart, uh, you know, anything that, that might have uh, proven that uh, humans were part of this this kill. Mm -hmm. Not a single thing. Wow. I mean, it was, uh, actually it was. It was the cleanest site I've ever been on. Nothing but mammoth there mm -hmm. at that point in time. But we uh, were so fortunate. It's hard to realize that we had F.M. Young, but the other half of that coin is Ralph Vincent, who came in and he he was always hanging around. Uh, I don't mean that uh, derogatorily, but he, he was around the museum on a fairly regular basis because of his interest. Yeah, he he, he did. He was he had been participatory in the Texas Archaeological Society for 30 years. And so he was always interested in what we were doing or finding or talking about. And he said, uh, can I come out and volunteer on that? Oh, absolutely. Come on, Ralph. And uh, at that point, just to be overly secure, uh, I was the one that opened the gate and let people in. I was there. And that was usually every weekend. Uh, well, we, what was the status of the property, Calvin, at that point? Yeah. yeah, good. yeah. Uh, Mr. Dr. Hepman check, uh, owned the property at that point in time. And David had already gotten approval the first time around to excavate those, those mammoths, uh, along with, and, uh, um, Narishkin, George Narishkin. Mm -hmm. uh, was representing the geology department and did his uh, senior thesis. Uh, they were requiring a senior thesis at that time mm -hmm. uh, on the five first five mammoths. Now he did two things. Number one, he named it the Waco Mammoth Site. That's what it was in his report. And secondly, he identified them as Mammutus columbiae, which is the Columbian mammoth. So those two things we owe to him. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as the very earliest stages of, of this occurred. Well, uh, the idea that uh, humans might be associated, I was setting up the typical archaeological square, which is usually a meter square and then working it and leaving box uh, between each square, so that and then a large bulk <clears throat> or un, un uh, tested material uh, in various places, so that you could align the stratigraphy mm -hmm. from one point to another. Well, uh, when you get into a mammoth, those squares are too small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I did away with that because we weren't finding anything in the screen. Now, a screen, it, it starts out as a quarter-inch screen, but it falls into a window screen. Uh, now, I'll divert here for just a minute, because uh, my next excavation, which hopefully will be this summer, uh, is on record, but I've got to get enough students. Uh, <clears throat> Two of my colleagues, one from France, uh, Alberto Esequillo, came to Blackwater Draw and said, we're not going to walk on the site. And so he put up some blocks, some cinder blocks, and put some 2 by 12s down. And we were working off of those 2 by 12s mm. And we were finding more stuff than we had ever found before. 
small mammal bones, uh, uh, a bird bone or two. And then uh, later, Rob Bonningson, again, one of my colleagues that has passed on, uh, he started doing the same thing, not walking on the site, but getting on boards and working the, the fine, really fine material and then putting it through various sizes of screen. <clears throat> he was finding chips of human teeth and, and human hair mm. in these sizes. Mm -hmm. So we weren't at that stage yet professionally, but I, I, I had that in mind that we were losing material no matter what, yeah. you know, small snails or free uh, adelphites, whatever, you know, it was just, it was just one of these things that, that I felt like uh, we were losing. But no human activity at all. It just wasn't there. So I expanded the site fairly rapidly by not doing the squares. And we, we started working really toward the, the, the west and exposing more bones. Uh, we had gotten probably a total, considering the first five, uh, about 16 animals by the end of that year. By This is the end of 83 or this is the end of 84? First year of work on it. Okay. See, uh, we didn't actually start on the side until the spring, May of uh, 84. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, John Fox uh, asked if he could bring his students out. We did that. And then I was having so much pressure to announce that we had had the, a large concentration of mammoths that uh, I agreed finally, as long as they didn't put how to get yeah. And in, in Because that's what you were getting at earlier is really trying to control access and location to protect the, yeah. Absolutely. Do you feel like you were able to do that? I mean, do you get the sense that word got out and the site was disturbed some? Uh, we had one instance uh, that disturbed me, yeah. and that was all of our tools were stolen. Uh, and then there was there was a little bit of damage done um, to uh, one of the specimens. And we didn't do it. So I know that somebody had gotten yeah. in. It was not difficult, believe me. I mean, at the first stages, we had no protection. Yeah. Uh, so I really was trying to say, nobody say anything about where this site is. Uh, and a tooth was missing, uh, but it was a loose tooth. It was, well, and I'll get to that in just a minute. So uh, in the fall of uh, 84, I believe, uh, I'd have to look, but uh, we had a five and a half inch deluge all one afternoon. Uh, I was crossing over Franklin Boulevard in, on an overpass, and I went straight to the site, and I couldn't get in. I mean, it was that bad. It was just, uh, just a, like I said, a deluge. So we waited till the next morning. And we had a, an exceptional volunteer student. She was in anthropology uh, named uh, uh, Bonnie Moran. And uh, so <clears throat> she came out, uh, another young man's 
student team, one of my students came out, uh, and then David and I, and it was a shocker because almost everything we had done right there in that first effort to to identify and and reveal those first uh, three or four or five specimens, they were washed pretty much downstream. And uh, uh, the first thing I did was go up and make sure the datum stake was still secure mm -hmm. because we could re put everything back if we could yeah. find it uh, because we knew where everything had been uh, plotted in from that datum stake. Well, uh, I had put the tractor, the backhoe, uh, down almost to the bottom. It was sticking up like this. Uh, because I wanted to do a profile, in other words, a cross-section of the material below the site mm -hmm. to see what was happening paleontologically or geologically. And so we went down, and I was about 12 feet deep, about as deep as I could go with that backhoe. And fortunately, uh, as a good backhoe operator usually does, he sticks a bucket in the in the dirt and then lets the, the uh, pads the braces down on yeah. the ground and so that that tractor was sticking up in the air literally i mean it was it, it, everything had washed out from underneath it and there was a big pile of brush on the upper side of it great big pile where they had washed in and so very 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 carefully <laughs> I backed out, and there was another mammoth. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it was a female, about 50 years old, and uh, in the mid-18th century, 19th century, well, it was latter 18th century and early 19th century, uh, when, when mammoths or mastodons were found, their tusks were out like this. So... The pictures, the drawings show the tusks. They're out. they're wide and they point outwards. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because they, in the process of decomposition, they slipped yeah. over. Most they were should have been straight yeah. out. Well, this had done that, and the top of her skull was washed away. I mean, it was just because of the water. It, the top of the skull was gone. But it there was, uh, and we were able to recover probably guessing uh 90 percent of the bone material yeah. because it, it had gotten down to a certain point and blocked up mm -hmm. so we re we recovered most of it but putting it back with the right animal now that's another story that's going to take years but it can be yeah. uh, but what was the surprise blew my mind was that on that west wall there was a, a female 45 years old, that had a juvenile on top of her tusk. She was trying to extricate this animal when she mm. went down. Well, <clears throat> we had had uh, a Baylor, uh, Baylor uh, PR department had convinced me to go ahead and have a uh, media day. And sure enough, it was a slow day because every media outlet in Texas was there. 
and uh, that was when we had the first 16. Okay. Sixteen total, and uh, they were good about it. They they didn't press the location at all, and and we had good we had coverage all over the world. Uh, we had papers, uh, at least acknowledgments from Japan and and uh, Korea, Europe, uh, Australia. So it was a big deal, and. One of my colleagues, who I'd only known by uh, his publications, called and said, Calvin, can I come look at your site? It was Gary Haynes, Dr. Mm -hmm. Gary Haynes, who had been at uh, Smithsonian uh, for several years and on a National Geographic Society extended grant, spent almost 10 years in Africa observing the behavioral patterns of modern elephants. Uh, and he was one of the very first people to identify these low guttural sounds that, that uh, elephants make talking to each other over a mile mm -hmm. away. Uh, that was some of his work. And also the fact that they revisited death scenes and would pick up a bone. And that's where the old adage of there was somewhere a boneyard what they were doing was simply nuzzling that bone uh, from a memory yeah. standpoint. Absolutely amazing yeah. animal. But he was the world's expert, bottom line. And uh, he came and told us three things that, that really gave us a perspective of the site and directed us directly into what we were working on. First, to be, first he said it was a nursery herd. And that if we found a bull, it would be a herd bull. And if he didn't get away, in other words, implying that the male of the species would try to save mm -hmm. himself. Uh, then secondly, that it was uh, uh, an instantaneous catastrophic event, that there were, it was a mud flow. That otherwise, and this is really important because I've been challenged on this, and of course it's still stuck in my craw a little bit, uh, that uh these animals died from a drought no we don't we don't deny that they were probably in a drought situation but if they were in a drought and that's the way they died they would have been spread out yeah. all over they wouldn't have been in one yeah. location bottom line. Uh, secondly we had about half of the adults in what we call a sudden death syndrome position that means when they're shot through the head they'll fall straight down like this with their heads upright. And we had at least five of the ones that we were working on in that sudden death syndrome position. So that meant that they had to have been held upright by the amount of mud flow that was there. Otherwise, they'd have been on their side if they'd have just died in a natural situation. Mm -hmm. So it was a, it was a, a reveal to us uh, that uh, that he was right on. And then the third thing he said, uh, we really ought to have a symposium, international symposium. And I said, yeah, that sounds good. He said, well, Calvin put that together for me. <laughs> so we did. <laughs> and uh, in 97, as I recall, uh, we held uh, mammoths, mastodons, and human interaction. And we had all the big dogs here. 
I mean, it was just uh, from Dennis Stanford to uh, uh, Gary Haynes, who was our keynote speaker, mm -hmm. by the way. Uh, but it was it was an extraordinary event, and it took me three years to put together the money to do the proceedings of that symposium. But we were able to do that. But we lost some papers of the presenters because they wanted to go ahead and I publish see. before the three-year yeah. period. Haynes held his up, and Webb, and, and a lot of others did. Shipman, all the big ones. Uh, so it was, an, in fact, it was called the. Woodstock of Probocidian research. <laughs> so it was a it was a great great uh, effort on our part. It was very difficult, but it was a great effort. Uh, back to where we were. This this forty uh, five year old female trying to execute a juvenile was the first of its kind in paleontological wow. history, and so. That was that was a, a a key, if you will, to us getting not just the recognition but also grant money. Uh, but I will say that the other triad of the supporters and helpers uh, was Gary Cartwright of the Cooper mm -hmm. Foundation. Uh, you know, it took me a long time to get him out there, but he kept giving me money, and I kept accepting. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, he he told me one time. He said, "Calvin, you're the only one that can get money out of me for digging a hole and then getting some mortar for covering it up." <laughs> but he was he was great, very very great supporter. Cooper Foundation. Every time I went to him, that's no, that's no lie. Every time I went to him, uh, he approved mm. the, the request. Mm -hmm. uh, and so. So this initial this initial round of attention that came in the mid '80s when you let press in, I mean, obviously one of the benefits of that is it does open up some funding opportunities, which you were in desperately need because you talked about this work, but you and David are the only one getting any money for it's all volunteer driven. Yeah, and I did, I, we didn't. All we got yeah. was our salary from yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. It. Uh, yeah. Almost every bit of it was. Volunteer time for my yeah. end too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't get out. I was teaching nine hours a semester plus the museum, uh, and so it was. It was a uh, <laughs> uh, a pretty yeah. big job. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we we had uh, had to decide since our parachute wore out over that used as a tent. And then I got a, a small grant from Cooper Foundation to, uh, after the flood, which in the, in the hindsight was a, was a big deal for also uh, being able to protect the site. It wasn't so much at that point, uh, vagrants or, I mean, uh, vandals. It was uh, the fact that uh, we could lose this site if we yeah. don't do something. So I went to Gary, uh, uh, Jerry Cartwright. I called him Gary, Jerry, uh, and said, uh, Jerry, we need to put a diversion dam above the site so that the water will be diverted around the, the site. And then we need to put up a fence. And I don't remember the exact amount, but it was substantial, like $13,000 mm -hmm. to do that. 
and so we did that, and that's when, in the process of of the uh, removal of the dirt to put the uh, diversion dam up, uh, the workers found a mammoth tooth, just a singular tooth, which is not uncommon. Let me let me go on another tangent. Uh, <clears throat> the way we knew that uh, statistically. Uh, we were dealing with both mammoths and mastodons. Now, mastodons are a forest animal restricted to uh, primarily the eastern part of the, the United States. Mammutus columbiae, or Colombian mammoths, are found throughout the, the, the northern part of North America and into Mexico. Uh, they are a grazer. They're not a browser like the uh, mastodon. Now, neither one of those species are Mammutus primogenius, which is the woolly mammoth. They were, they were restricted to the northern latitudes, uh, heavily furred. I wish I'd have pulled my fur out from Russia to show you the mammoth fur. Um, but in our case, it was strictly Mammutus columbiae, which is common uh, I would say from uh, South Dakota, Nebraska, mm -hmm. South mm -hmm. in the plains. Uh, but these mastodons were showing up. Their teeth were showing up. Uh, these are mastodont hump tooth or large tooth, uh, very distinctive, totally different from the grazer, which has a flat tooth. And uh, there was a lady who came by the museum and wanted to talk about mammoths, and I was always willing to talk about mammoths. And she said, you know, I have a hundred, hundred mammoths. And I said, hundred. And she said, yes, I go out to FM's gravel pits. And when he's not looking, I pick up these teeth. And 18% of those hundred were mastodon teeth. So whether or not they looked at each other across the Bradley River, wow. I'm not sure. But they yeah. were here, and the timing is, you know, suspect on every everybody's mm -hmm. mind. But but they they were they were certainly alive and well until uh, ten thousand mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, but we didn't have any mastodon mm -hmm. at our site. So uh, we had decided that w without. Uh, good protection. We had also my one of my last uh, courses that I taught was on uh, museum physical facilities, <laughs> and we designed a structure that would go over the site uh, as a class. And one of those students went on to do her master's thesis on enclosed proboscidean sites. She went all or actually. Uh, uh, I guess megafauna sites, because she she didn't just restrict herself to mammoths, but a lot of the sites she visited were mammoth sites, including uh, Hot Springs, South Dakota site, where they have found now over 50 uh, mammoths and one mastodon, I understand, but uh, they were it was over a long yeah. time period. It was a trap. It was a, a natural trap where, and uh, Gary, I mean, uh, then. Uh, 
These old mines get too slow. You just wait. Larry Agenbrod was director okay. up there, and he was the one that excavated from the very beginning. And uh, Larry used to say that was the hot rod syndrome because most of the animals were young male, juveniles and male, young males who were testing themselves, getting down in there and you know, taking it out. So, uh, but it was over a very long yeah. time period. So we still had, as, Ga as Gary Haynes said, uh, the uh, largest concentration of a single herd dying from the same event yeah. known to science at that point. Cal Calvin, I want to yeah. ask here, just because uh, it sounds like you became convinced early on that it wasn't a kill site. Uh, when, when do you... Right. When do you think you, I mean, in this early, your work on the site early on, when do you feel like you kind of came to that conclusion that it probably was not a kill site? Well, we very carefully excavated uh, from the five, the first five. We very carefully excavated and screened, and I would say up to number mm -hmm. 12. You know, they were very concentrated, and there would have been yeah. something there. You know, it would have just been no question that if there was that many in that location, that close confinement, that there would have been yeah. artifacts yeah. because of butchering, at least mm -hmm. butchering, if not yeah. kill. Uh, so we had to make the decision to go ahead and uh, what we call uh, make everything known as far on paper as to where everything was. In other words, we cited it in. I used uh, one of my former students again, uh, who had his own cultural resource management firm and was doing archaeology. He brought his men, humans, and equipment in, and we did the profile of, of where they were, uh, or, uh, both horizontally and vertically. And so we knew where everything was, and we could replace it either by uh, cast or the original material if it was if it was covered so we set out to remove everything that had been exposed and it was a great experience because i had my students out uh, we had the uh, paleontological society of uh, dallas uh, which was the premier society in texas and uh, we had a lot of volunteers locally from the uh, Central Texas Archaeological Society and just a lot of interested people to help. And it was, it, it was the process of, you know, I would ideally, I would have purchased uh, acid-free paper and put on it first, but we didn't have that. So we didn't use newspaper because it'll, mm -hmm. it'll fade and go into the bone. But we did use a, a paper that was plain, and we then put toe sacks, if you will, over that, and then plastic jacketed everything. And if it was a large piece, we put two by fours, uh, sometimes crossways, so we could handle it and get it over. And then we did, uh, oh, yeah, let me tell you about, I can't remember which one, what number it was, but there was a 50-year-old female. And she obviously was was mature. I mean, and of course, you're talking about an animal that can live to be 65 years old in the wild. Uh, 
and she was on her left side and she was pointed upslope just like that 45 year old female with the mm -hmm. juvenile only the juvenile was not on that same level he was mm -hmm. up above that so he was that female and that juvenile were headed mm -hmm. up somewhere and she was right to the right of them and and uh so we started casting getting ready to cast her and you have to go underneath enough to make sure that it's not going to break or anything you put the the field cast underneath them uh, jacket and uh i got underneath her left side and i was trying to find the end of the tusk so we'd make sure we got it and i i was crawling around there trying to find that daggone tusk and it wasn't there and i said her left tusk is gone and of course everybody laughed and so we took her out and sure enough it had been broken off and heavily worn which was another indicator that they were under severe yeah. environmental stress uh because if, if it had been just broken like a say a bull in fighting it would have been jagged it wouldn't have been uh smoothed mm. off like that but we cast uh we went ahead and well i'll, I'll get that here uh, we went ahead and took all those out, put them in the museum. Actually, it was not the museum no. because we didn't have room. We we had the old uh, O'Grady warehouse, and so that became our our bone <laughs> place. Got a lot of kidding about that, uh, as well as uh, mammoths under the tent, the circus tent. We got a lot of kidding about that. But it was uh, it was a big job, and I felt good about it at the time because we were uh, observing some uh, deterioration uh, mm -hmm. from the elements. It just couldn't be helped, you know. And I, I, in fact, I understand I was criticized for that in a paper that was given. But uh, we were doing the best yeah. we could with no money, you know and trying to get things, save the site and present it and uh, get something done there to, to save it. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, I couldn't sleep at night. I was turning and tossing because where were those two animals going? Where were they headed? And uh, so I went back to FEM and I, and Ralph and I talked about this. We had a lot of work to do. We had to, because that was the brushy end. That was where all the trees were, was on that brushy end. Uh, the other part was pretty well uh, easy to do. So we had to do, you know, weeks of cleaning just to get through the dirt. And so I borrowed another backhoe uh, from FM, and the first thing that happened, <laughs> funny now, uh, the hose that controls all of your lifting and, and digging and everything blew out in it and, and the hydraulic fluid just <laughs> do we have a photo of that do we have a uh, no no uh ralph never did take any photos uh but anyway uh we fixed it and we got back to work and within from the time that i started actually doing the process from the edge of where that uh, 45 year old female and juvenile were, I started right there and started 
coming up up the bank. And within 30 minutes, I found a flake of bone in the oh, bucket. Wow. Okay. I saw it. And uh, I got pretty good. I could probably pick up a dime yeah. with that bucket, yeah. you know. So I was being very observant. So I backed off. We went down. Ralph and I were only ones there. And I took a picture of the trowel pointing to the to the bone. And we started clearing that off. And uh, there was the largest metatarsal wow. I've ever seen. It's about this long and about that big around. Okay, so you're bone. you're holding it up. Our listeners can't see that. So it was about you said about two feet long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, not 18 quite. Inches Eighteen of... inches, and probably uh, okay. four inches wow. in diameter. Uh, and that's just the toe bone. So Ralph and I looked at each other, and said, "Yeah, bull. Yeah, we got the bull." But it was a year later that we got to the head end to paint to make sure it was a bull <laughs> one year to excavate that one mammoth uh but it was it was a and ralph by that point in time we had lost a, a lot of our regular volunteers and so ralph bless his heart he was out there all the time i just gave him the key <laughs> yeah you know go now when is when is this on the timeline when when is yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, let me. You look can just tell quick. me generally. Is this late eighties or, yeah, late eighties? Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, well, in fact, I, I said the symposium wrong. It was uh, eighty-seven. Okay, not ninety-seven. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, right. I'm sorry. And then we we uh, printed the proceedings okay. in ninety-two. So the early part of ninety-two, we, we okay. did the proceedings. But uh, yeah, it's uh, here we we moved everything primarily during the summer and okay. fall of '90, and then I found that uh, flake. Uh, okay. Ninety-one. Okay. Ninety-one. Uh, and then there was a, another one that came out just below that. Uh, we were concentrating on the bull, but uh, some water came down through that side as it usually did with just a tent there. And there was a number uh, 18 showed up, uh, which was a younger female. Uh, uh, but, <laughs> Jerry Haynes heard about the bull. As he had predicted. As he predicted. Yeah. As he had predicted. And he said, I, I need to come, but uh, you need to finance me. <laughs> so, okay, we're going to have another symposium, Jerry. <laughs> no, I brought him in as a guest lecturer. I had some funds. By the way, uh, John and Marie Childs. John came to me, this is important. John came to me when we were relocating the village. And I was gonna be sued if I ever said anything other than the governor beyond Barry Daniel historic village, but it was the village. Another another uh, uh, Gal, uh, Calvin Smith uh, contribution to the local uh, museum landscape. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. 
I was accused of reintroducing a HUD project to Baylor. <laughs> uh, but uh, it worked. It worked. Uh, anyway, uh, John came to me when we were just starting to restore some of those, re refurbish those buildings. And he said, what do you need? And I said, what do you mean, what do I need? He said, what do you need to do this work? And I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, a flatbed truck. He said, go find one. And I did. And he was part of our effort to build a new museum, neighboring yeah. museum, I see. from that point forward. He and, yeah. and, and Marie said, do you have a... Uh, an associates program, a friends organization. I said, yeah. She said, how many members you got? I said, two. <laughs> so <laughs> it became her objective uh -huh. to build that up, and she did. Uh, I think people were afraid to meet her on the street. They'd cross the street to keep them <laughs> from getting to her. But anyway, uh, she, both those people are priceless. I mean, they, they did more to help me and encourage yeah. me and encourage me uh, on the whole thing, not just the Mammoth side or not just Ollie Mimoyne or, uh, well, the village was a different story, but uh, no, it was, it was, it was uh, one of those most memorable and most uh, important parts of yeah. my career there. Uh, so, uh, after we got, well, let me get, get, go with Gary. He came back and he had predicted that the bull would be in its mid 50s. He said, if there's a bull there, he'd be in his mid 50s. It was 55 <laughs> years old. And uh, that's, that's when he said, this is probably the most important paleontological mm -hmm. site in the world today. And I used it from that day forward. I mean, I used it every chance I got. Now let's go back to the the challenges of the of the property, because Hetmanchek sold it to Sam Jack McGlasson. Now Sam Jack became mayor of Waco, and but he was really interested in this site. I mean, personally interested. It wasn't just, hey, here's a good tourist attraction. It was mm -hmm. his interest for real. And he called me in on his deathbed. Uh, cancer, not much time to live. And he said, Calvin, go out and stake what you need to preserve that site. So I went out and I didn't know how much I had, but I staked it out to where we could have an entrance. It would, it would cover the site and, and the drainage and then cut it off on the northwest corner. It was 4.93 acres. And he said, well, write it up and I'll donate it. And I said, would you be willing to donate it to the city? Oh, hell no. <laughs> I said, but, but Sam Jack, I said, I can get money through, and I don't remember the name of the program. It was it was part of that uh -huh, tobacco yeah. tax thing where they were uh -huh. improving the parks and, and yeah. recreational areas. I said, 
I can get some of that money, but it has to come through the city. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> you know, it was very reluctant to do that. Uh, but so that's the way, in all honesty, the city got involved was they took the property. And uh, then I had a call from a gentleman that owned a couple of three banks and a couple of three TV stations and primarily a uh, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, an airplane. Uh, but uh, anyway, he said, uh, come by my office and let's talk about that mammoth site. We've yeah. gotten a lot of publicity. In fact, I've been on uh, the Channel 25 every month for yeah talking about more, work talking at the site and yeah 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 uh, and uh, Don Marion mm -hmm. I was on Don Marion's show and uh, so I walked in and uh, he handed me a hundred thousand dollar check. And he said, we'll talk about that later. And so I looked over on his desk and there was a pile of books about like this on mammoths. So he had read just about everything that was available at that point in time on mammoths. And so we discussed the site uh, a lot, a couple of hours. And I looked over on his uh, computer and I saw a screensaver that said Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. <clears throat> and I said, uh, you a hunter? Oh, yeah. Been hunting elk? Yeah. Uh, done pretty well. Ain't never killed one. So I said, uh, well, it just so happens I've got a friend up in Okita, New Mexico that's wanting me to come up there. He has them in his backyard, maybe his front yard. Let's go. He meant right then we'd walk out of his office, get in his plane and fly up there. And I said, no, I'll have to make some arrangements, but we'll get up. And this is interesting. <clears throat> so we did get in his uh, beautiful plane, and I was sitting in the co-pilot seat with white knuckles because there was a 80-something-year-old man flying this plane, you know, and I was a co-pilot. So, so we flew up, and we we approached Las Vegas, New Mexico, just south of Ocate, and he kept calling the ground, uh, come in, come in, you know. And finally, this kid comes on the, on the mic and says, don't land on the main runway. Don't land on the main runway. We're working on it. So Mr. Bostick does a wing over, comes in with this humongous plane and lands on a strip about this long, <laughs> about that wide. And, and I, he says, I don't usually make approaches like that, but I felt pretty comfortable. I trained P-51 pilots in World War II. Uh, yeah. He was an amazing man, absolutely yeah. incredible. But I was told beforehand that uh, not only did he never let a dollar mm -hmm. go, he never let mm -hmm. a penny go. You know, it was he was he was known for his frugality. <laughs> and uh, but we, the next year on about the same time period, about the end of December, I got another call from him, and we'd been in contact a lot. He said. Come by my office. I've got something for you. He gave me another. So, so Calvin, you spent some time with him. Why 
why do you think his generosity on this particular project, why do you think he got so invested literally in, in this effort? I think it was dual. I think he started yeah. to trust someone because uh, I wasn't yeah. after it to start with, uh, that it was something that I was committed to and, and he appreciated that. And then it's, yeah. it was something of interest yeah. to him, great interest to him. Uh, but yeah. he was an amazing person, and we remain friends until he's dead. You know, it was, uh, it was good. Um, and then there was uh, Don and Pam Mose. Uh, what I was trying to do was buy the hundred acres that I knew we had to have for a national monument. We had to have that much access and land to, to be able to even go to uh, the park service and say we're, okay, we're ready so to be considered. Before we get to that, when did that idea pop in your head? I mean, when did that idea, is that idea in there from the 80s? Or, or when did that idea pop in your head about national monument status? Or... When when Gary Haynes said okay. it was the most important okay. site in, yeah. in the world. Yeah, yeah. That was... That was a, yeah. the seal for me, uh, that, okay. that it was that important, that it, that it just had to be saved one way or another. And so I was trying to build this uh, 100 acres. And at that point in time, uh, what we call the Belgian property, which was on the, the edge of the highway to the north, uh, was going to put a golf course in. They, they had already planned it out, drawn it up, and um, couldn't talk to them. I mean, they, they were, yeah. you know, in Belgium. So I'd never had a chance to sit down with them. Uh, but Don and Pam Mose had tried to build a nature trail in Woodway, and they never could agree with the city and what they their aspirations were to make it really special and work and so it was kind of dropped and when i heard about their desires and what they would like to do i went to them and i said look <clears throat> we can do several things with with the next donation we can make a dock for a river taxi on the brass on the uh, 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 <laughs> uh, on the Bosque, yeah, yeah. On the Bosque. Come up the Brazos and then up the Bosque yeah. and have a have a dock for it. You can walk from that dock up through three uh, levels of ecology, and you can put a tower at each one and and look over the, the area and see the various uh, biomes, uh, ecosystems. Uh, it, it's an incredible opportunity, better than Woodward. And they saw it. And they gave them $125,000 to do that. Now, that hasn't been done. Uh, but they were, I talked to them at length uh, when I went back and uh, actually, uh, Don, I didn't get to see Pam, but uh, I, I talked to him about the, how important his gift was, their gift was, and 
and that it saved the, the effort. And at some point in time, I'll be addressing the foundation yeah. to try to get that done because that was a, I didn't make a promise. Yeah. I said, that's what we'd like to do, but I would like to do, I would like to see that done. So, uh, I sat and looked at that bull and that juvenile on his tusk for almost a year, I guess. And I, I knew this guy out in Crosbyton, Texas. Uh, and he owned Mount Blanco Fossil Casting Company. And he's a, he's a latent hippie, what he is. Uh, but he's a great guy and a master at preservation. And so I called Joe Taylor and I said, Joe, can you come down? I'll pay your way. But we need to talk about this bull and this juvenile. And he had heard about the side of course. And so he came down and I said, Joe, we need to cast this bull and this juvenile in situ, in place. So that we'll always have that, no matter what happens. Flood, you know, vandals, whatever happens, we'll have that. And he said, you're crazy. And I said, I know that, but let's try to figure out how to do it. So he walked around the site for much more than an hour, looking at everything, you know, and trying to size up that mammoth and that juvenile. And he came back and he said, well, if we do this and that and the other, and I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, he said, I said, how much will it cost? He said, well, uh, probably about 15000 uh, because of the amount of materials he needed and, and getting it back to his his place. And uh, so I went to Jerry Cartwright, and uh, that was, I think, maybe the last gift he did before we passed. And uh, got the money, and we used it almost every bit of it on the materials yeah. involved. 45 different sections to that cast. Now, we we marked uh, eras and color-coded it and, and everything else. When we finally got it cast, we had to take it off. We just set them over there outside of the area. It took us a week to put that stuff back together on his trailer. I mean, it was, and really the only thing that we paid for, paid yeah. him for was his transportation. Wow. He didn't get anything out of it. Uh, but the result is the largest field cast ever made. Wow. Uh, as far as I know, even today. And uh, I gave a paper in Beijing, and I want to say that was 97 to the 30th International Geological Congress on the site and the megacast that we made. And I was sitting after my presentation the next morning, a lot of the speakers were at this hotel and we had breakfast together and somebody said, hey, did you hear that presentation on the mammoth site yesterday? Of course, I didn't say anything. <laughs> and they, they talked about the three things. They talked about the, the largest herd dying the same event uh, nursery herd they talked about uh, how important it was that uh, it's being saved and then they said you know that cast mm -hmm. means that we can do that anywhere 
And so that was really a, a breakthrough from yeah. the technological standpoint of, of the site. And the results are now yeah. in the Mayburn Museum. Yeah, that's right. Walk over. Uh, I have proposed to the foundation, and Joe has given us a price on that as well, and that is to make a frame that's not too obvious and put that mm. juvenile back on that cusp so that people can see yeah. what, where that juvenile was. And uh, the reason we, we moved it uh, was because it was in danger. It was, it was higher than anything else. It was not as stable, and the skull had fallen over and was, was catty-cornered. And so we removed and, and we removed that juvenile so we could cast the rest I of see. that cusp that was underneath it. So, so that all yeah. has been put together, yeah. and that's what's in the, in the museum. Um, trying to think now. Uh, I uh, yeah, let me let me look right quick because there was something else that occurred. You 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 saw some of the things that were happening here, and Joe um, came and uh, we did that cast. We did the rest of the. The cusp. Oh yeah. Uh, Ralph had gotten up to the edge of the last animal we actually excavated, and that was a 50, another fifty-year-old female. About. Um, we had made a decision at that point in time that we were going to leave the next animal, whatever it was, in situ, so that people could see how. We started to work on them, how much left would be to work on. In yeah, other words, yeah. it was a teaching experience. And uh, so we were working on that, and Joe finds this tooth of a saber tooth. Now, it was a juvenile. It was a small tooth, but it was definitely a saber tooth, a smilodon. And, and then on the very top of this balk that I had left, there was a turtle. So it was different time period, but it was a large mm -hmm. soft-shell turtle. Um, we find at Blackwater Draw, at uh, Naco, Laner, probably many other sites, uh, Dent probably, that there was a heavy usage of turtles mm -hmm. by these paleo people. Uh, they were easily accessible. Their uh, carapaces could be used for boiling, uh, not directly, but putting yeah. hot stones in the water to, to make hot water. So <clears throat> lots of turtle, but this turtle was not associated with this, this particular event. Uh, the other thing was a camel, which was between number 50 and the bull. And it was it's hard to tell. At that point, we were having a lot of mixing mm -hmm of the stratigraphy, like it was part of the the mud flow. It was hard to follow it. And uh, so we couldn't say for sure that the, the camel mm -hmm. was directly associated. Yeah. I couldn't at that time. They, they may have done more work on it, but I, I couldn't at the time. Uh, but camelops were common, uh, as were horses, uh, dire wolves, uh, the American lion, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had a whole host of plastic animals. Uh, but we did 
find those those different uh, species. But I got to that point, and uh, oh uh, well, and 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 I had gotten I had gotten enough money to buy that tent, the last one that we put up. But I retired uh, after 20 years, at Baylor, in 2003. And uh, David left. He went to the Redmond Museum, where he still is. And I had uh, testified due to uh, mm -hmm. Chet Edwards' efforts. I had testified to a subcommittee of the National Park Service about the site. And that's really what got the ball rolling and Chet was was the core person on that. Uh, and they passed a resolution at that point, it was not a law, a resolution to continue to pursue this uh, possibility of a national monument. And they, they uh, directed the division director uh, to send the geologist and uh, paleontologist out. And so that's, that's what got the ball rolling toward the finalization of the, of the uh, designation. And uh, two or three things. Um, I'll tell you who, who picked up the ball when I left. And it was not a surprise because she had become just as interested mm -hmm. as FEM, and that was Gloria Young. And she helped start that foundation and, and the whole concept. Yeah, yeah, that's, and that's a great another idea. good interview yeah. too, uh, because she she was primary and got and got a lot of people involved. Uh, and uh, by the time I left, uh, the city was not as involved as I'd hoped. Uh, I thought that we would have had more uh, assistance, uh, support system, if you will, uh, from them. Uh, so Gloria yeah. had that ability yeah. to pull those people together. It became really important. Uh, the Mayburn was opened uh, with the exhibit, which helped a whole lot. Um, Dale Lacey became the president of the of the uh, effort, uh, and uh, was a major player. And of course, I cover the uh, new guard brings it to mm -hmm. fruition in chapter eight uh, with uh, President Obama signing. Yeah, so uh, Calvin is referencing there a forthcoming book. Uh, we we just had a conversation. It's forthcoming in about a year. But uh, it, it is uh, a history of the Waco Mammoth site. Uh, Calvin Smith and David Lentz put this together and really fills in a gap where we don't have, particularly the early period of the development of the site. So it's a big a contribution. And Calvin doesn't retire well. Uh, he's, I'm squad casting <laughs> with him from work right now. So, uh, so he, he, do, he doesn't retire very well. But I do want to ask Calvin, uh, you one of the last times you came back to the site was for the 10th anniversary uh, can you talk a little bit about that experience for you and what that's like yeah sure sure 
Sure. By the way, this is my third on retirement. He's very bad at it. Very bad at it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just hadn't taken yet. Uh, yeah, I was asked to come back, and, and I was very pleased to do so. Um, it was good to see what it had transpired. Uh, uh, Dean Lee North at Bayer. Uh, has taken a great interest in the site and has done some work out there. And and uh, they did, uh, let me back all the way up, because we had a, a student that was majoring both in geology and museum studies. So she was one of my students and and, uh, and geology student. And she was doing a, a, a detailed terrace uh, composite of where these animals were and and uh, exactly what carries they were on. And so she was boring holes all the way up from the river and getting these three terraces that I mentioned earlier about the nature tree. But then she came up above the mammoth site, right up on top of, of where we entered because the mammoths were down here and the, the, the top of the terrace was right up here. And she bore down and as I remember, it was 13 feet. And uh, the, the, the core that she brought up had a mammoth ilium in it, the hip bone of a mammoth. So we knew that there was more animals there. Now we're same time period, same event. What I always thought before she did that even was that they were trying to get up and out through a mm -hmm. ravine or draw uh, from that flood event, I, that uh -huh. mire that they were in. And I always thought, now Haynes said, predicted also, I said, how many possible if they were under severe environmental stress? And he said, 35, no more than 40 in the herd. He said, probably closer to 35. So we had mm -hmm. 20 plus, and, but uh, they were under severe environmental stress, and some could have died way out, you know, in the hinterlands. Uh, but I always thought there might be something else on up from that last one that we, we excavated. And uh, then Lee North, I believe, had a student, and he, were, he was working with a student. They did some borings up there and came up with some more bones. So uh, just outside mm -hmm. of the current building is where they were working and and that's close to where she was working i can't with the building there it's hard yeah. to, i could have pointed right to the hole yeah. before the building was there now let yeah. me mention the building for just a minute it's amazing it's done by the specs that my student put together you know i mean it, it's just this superb building yeah for uh, open air site uh but in my mind when we were talking about doing something in the future I was going to encompass the ravine where the first bone was found. I, I thought that if we could show how how primitive it looked from the standpoint of what it is now with the excavation, that it would impress people from the standpoint of how much went into it to be able to get to where, where they are today. Uh, but that wasn't yeah. done, and we lost oh, the death. Oh, I didn't death. know that, yeah. Uh, one of my biggest disappointments in my whole career was going and not being able to put my hand on that datum because mm -hmm. uh, 
It was so important. Now, the question has become, uh, and it's through some of some of the work that Lee has done, and he's an extraordinary scientist. Don't get me wrong. He, he just didn't have what we needed to work with. They put the wall between the 45-year-old female and the bull. Mm -hmm. So we lost that strategy, that, that element. I call it <laughs> my missing link. <laughs> because we know what the bull was on and what he was in, but yeah. did it continue down to the yeah. female? Because that's gone. And so uh, one of the pictures shows me trying to find that missing link. Uh, but yeah, it was a great experience, uh, and and we were able to fill in a lot of gaps for Reagan King, mm -hmm. who's the director out there now, and uh, it was good to get back. I mean, it was. It well, was, I, you can hear good. how. So, Calvin was also the founding director of the Museum Studies Program at Baylor, and you can hear your desire in there right. that the teaching value of the site. I mean, some of the things that that your sad may have been lost in there is some of the ways in which you could have taught with the site and and uh i can i can hear the heart of a teacher as you as you kind of talk about it there yeah well yeah that's, that's <laughs> one reason i got out of retirement yeah. <laughs> i miss it mm -hmm. I, I miss my yeah. students that's well it's and it's countless the number of students that contributed to this even this particular project but also, if we think, uh, want to think Texas and locally in general, just the, the countless hours that your students put into kind of improving all sorts of sites. Uh, we kept a, a record of Ralph's volunteerism for a good while. And uh, we know that he put in 14,000 hours there. Uh, and it was probably, it was probably a lot. Well, better. I thought it was, a, it was appropriate that you uh, dedicated the publication, uh, to Ralph, uh, just all the hours that he spent out there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, it we wouldn't be talking about, it would mm -hmm. still be a long yeah. way down the yeah. pike if it wasn't for Ralph. Well, you've been really generous with your time. I know it's spring break. You were supposed to be in Fort Lauderdale or, uh, New Orleans. So I, I appreciate you. Uh, Stick it or yeah. Uh, actually, actually, I uh, I have a, a possible mammoth coming out. Oh, fantastic! Mexico, right? that. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, uh, I'm glad to know you're out there excavating something. So, <laughs> well, uh, Calvin, I, I do want to thank you for, of course, all your work you've always done uh, here locally, and for joining us to tell kind of the next generation about it uh, through the podcast. Well, it's been my pleasure. I, <laughs> I enjoy listening to myself. All right, with that, we'll close. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.